The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. In popular music, an artist's value is oftentimes considered only as good as their last single. Rare are those artists whose work gets elevated above the media-generated hype jobs and flavors of the moment. 35 years ago, one of those artists made their mainstream debut with an album that continues to have presence not only on alternative music, but culture in general. This is the History of Alternative Podcast. I'm James Van Ossel. That's John Manley. Mutiny on the Bounty is what he's all about. I did it like this. I did it like that. I did it with the help of St. Xavier University, JVO. They educate students for competence, character, and career success through high-quality programs and clear college-to-career pathways. Celebrating 175 years of rich mercy and Catholic, Catholic tradition, at SXU, you will find the best in you. Let me clear my throat. We have to stop with these puns, by the way. That's enough now. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. This is our first deep dive into an iconic alternative album. And for this one, it's a big one. It's BC Boys License to Ill, released 35 years ago in 1986. So the question is, what is it about this album? We still play these songs on the radio 35 years later. What is it about this, John? It's a great question. We should do a podcast about it. Oh, hey, here we are. Um, you know, I'm really glad we're doing this because to me, this is one of those. Um, this is a definitive album in my life. This is probably the first album as a kid that I was like obsessed with. Right. Um, was it the first rap album for you? It's not the, for the, is it the first? Um, I don't know if Beastie Boys came before Run DMC, but they were both uh, probably not probably Run DMC first. Um, but right about the same exact time, I kind of put them both in the same, like I discovered rap at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and the beastie boys were just everything. So what is it about it? I mean, well, let's go with the easy way. It's a party record. It's, It's party anthem after party anthem after party anthem. Those never get old. Those songs always sound good coming out of a boom box while you're flipping burgers on a grill, right? Like that first and foremost matters. The music is perfect. It's great music. Um, what else about it? I mean, w- let's dive in. I mean, is it the first rap album? Is it the first? It's not the first time rap and rock collided. I mean, a couple of years before that, you mentioned Run DMC. They did the song Rock Box in 1984, which kind of it predated everything the Beastie Boys did. And by that point, the Chili Peppers were a couple albums deep into what they were doing. They put out the self-titled album and freaky styly and expose us to things like true men don't kill coyotes and Hollywood and their version of uh, the song Africa by the meters. So the chili peppers were kind of socializing the idea of marrying rap and rock music or alternative music. Yeah. And I think the big, I mean, if you wanted to put a pin on a timeline, I think you have to put it at run DMC and, and Aerosmith's walk this way. Like that's kind of, the moment right where i mean that was a big smash hit record where guitars and you know 808 beats were happening you're like oh my god this is a thing that can happen like what is this <laughs> and that know? was the same year the, the same year as license yeah. to ill was that collaboration that happened earlier hey, what, what a seismic year what, what who knew at the time how important those two recordings would be and how wildly influential they'd be on everything to come for literal decades and it all came out of the college dorm room of Rick Flip and Ruben. I mean, that is, you know, Def Jam 
that's a huge moment in time. And that's a huge period for them with LL Cool J. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this. It's like LL Cool J, the, the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, and Slayer, <laughs> which is yeah. wonderful. It's amazing. <laughs> and it, as was the case with so many labels during the startup period, a lot of those artists cross-pollinated. And on Licensed Ill, you see a lot of those Def Jam artists contributing from Run DMC to Carrie King of Slayer. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because for as much as in 1986, this was a definitive rap album, listening to it in 2021, it's as much a rock record as it is anything. Wouldn't you say? I mean, oh, I, I absolutely would say. I mean, Kerry King soloed on No Sleep Till Brooklyn. And if you didn't know that, listen back to the song and you'll hear it clear as day. I, the interesting thing Beastie Boys did with Rick Rubin's assistance and guidance was bringing all these big, super familiar classic rock samples. Now, the Beastie Boys started as a punk rock band. So by the time they got off the ground, bands like Led Zeppelin and Creedence Clearwater Revival were dinosaurs they were they were the man they were the enemy they were they were what they were what the beastie boys were created to destroy so it was almost not even ironic it was almost subversive to put these big rock samples on the album i mean there are zeppelin albums all over or zeppelin samples all over the place when the levy breaks kicks off rhyming and stealing and zeppelin was even influenced uh even influenced the cover of the album um, Rick Rubin saw a picture of the Led Zeppelin private jet, and that was his inspiration <laughs> for the album cover. <laughs> so, right. And yeah. then you've got the ocean sampled on She's Crafty. You've got Custard Pie sampled on Time to Get Ill. This was, on the Beastie Boys part and on Rick Rubin's part, probably a little subversive. But to your point, John, this was a way for rock kids in the suburbs to appreciate and embrace rap music it was it was like a a gateway to this new universe this def jam universe this place where ll and run dmc were doing their thing it was it was a a rocked up version of rap especially considering like this was the time this wasn't an era where the suburb kids would come to the city to see explore things like it was like you lived in the burbs and that's where you lived right like this was like a glimpse into new york when new york was dangerous and scary and then you know these three Jewish white kids are giving you (laughs) she's crafty and like no sleep till Brooklyn. And you're like, awesome. And your parents were uncomfortable, which makes it, that's the most important thing, right? Like if you're a kid and you find a record and your parents don't like it, you like it 10 times more. That is the truth. You talked at the very beginning about every song on this album being a party album. I think the appeal beyond the fact that, yeah, it, it, it struck those rock notes and it, it hit those rock listeners in the suburbs. I think it was just this pervasive attitude. The, these three guys, they were brash. They were obnoxious. And by the same token, what you're just saying about annoying parents, they were dangerous sounding. They made your parents uncomfortable. They were they were typical early 20 snotty kids. And that persona they created didn't necessarily last throughout their career. But back in 1986, it was it was their mission statement. It's interesting. Um, the Beastie Boys are an interesting uh, onion to unpeel, because if you start at License to Ill, your impression of them is like three jerks. Really? Right. I mean, they're young. They're arrogant. They are just talking shit, basically. 
and to learn as you go through the history of the band and you learn more about them and you start to like discover like, oh, you know, MCA is a Buddhist and they were into punk rock before they were into rap and all of these things and how their characters were just that they were characters. They were not really who, you know, Mike D was or Ad Rock was. It was it was it was a show. They were wrestling characters. And that that's always so amazing to me to see, to see how they could do that um, and become these three characters and how it really almost derailed them, you know, because they come back with the second record, Paul's Boutique, which is again, it's it's one of those records where at the time it was panned, but through time you go, it's one of the most important records. Oh, I, I don't think it was panned. I, I remember that as being a huge commercial or not commercial, a huge critical Success yeah, not a commercial time. success though. It did not. No, sell. not at all. Not at all. Uh, but no, the critics loved it. And yeah, you know, the big difference, I, I think, songwriting definitely improved. But it was the change in producer. I mean, the, they went from Rick Rubin to the Dust Brothers. Totally different vibe, aesthetic. Uh, the songs sounded fuller, and the samples were more interesting and more obscure. Yeah, and and for I guess for better or for worse, however you want to look at it. Um, I remember an interview with uh, Puff Daddy who said that. Paul's Boutique was the album that changed his life because he didn't know that album elevated sampling into an art form mm-hmm. versus just lifting beats or lifting hooks. It was like that entire, I think like, like 98% of that record, the sounds on that record are samples or something like that. Like it's an absurd amount, a number where it's like every sound down to like a snare at a, in a song is not an actual snare, but a sample. It's incredible. And you go back to License to Ill, to go back to the Zeppelin samples, when the levee breaks, it was just looped on a reel-to-reel for Ryman and Steeler. And this was about as lo-fi an approach as possible to putting together a record and putting samples on a record. Which made it, I think that was the the, the beauty of it. It, was, it felt so attainable and it felt so raw, which just added to the aesthetic. I mean, just from top to bottom, the look, the attitude, the feel, and the music, it's just one of those moments where everybody performed at a high level and caught lightning in a bottle. That is true. You mentioned the Tibetan Freedom Concert. Can you imagine being a fan of Licensed Ills, turning on MTV every 75 minutes, seeing the, the Fight for Your Right video, and then going into a coma? And then when you come out of the coma, you learn about the Tibetan Freedom Show or you're taking the to the Tibetan Freedom Show. I think it'd be impossible for the human brain to process how the band that gave us license to Ill ended up there because they were just, they were this raucous, misogynistic, rock and roll lifestyle issuing band. I mean, look at the lyrics. These lyrics would never fly today, uh, especially in Florida. If I played guitar, I'd be Jimmy Page. The girlies I like are underage. First of all, I see what you did there. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, to your point, like the album was originally going to be called Don't Be a Faggot. Like it was different in 1986, but even in 1986, that is wild. That is audacious. That is too far. And, and to have that band turn into, you know, the Tibetan Freedom Concert. It's it's incredible. I mean, it was even wild just to when they started playing their own old their own instruments when they came out with uh, uh, what's that album? Uh, not Hello Nasty, the one before it. Uh, Ill Communications. Jeez, um, 
even then, like as a fan, you're like, wow, they play their own instruments. Like you didn't know that Mm -hmm. at the time. Right. And it was like, oh, wow, these guys are like adults now and like mature. And, you know, it was what did their career arc is so incredible. I, I like I just look back on it and it's it's so amazing. And it didn't have to be because they didn't have to evolve if they didn't want to like that. They could have done three more license to ills and been fine sold another billion records that's probably true and this album i mean yes they did sell a billion records that album license to ill the one we're building this entire episode on went to the number one spot on the billboard charts it was the first rap album to ever do so and congratulations to the beastie boys they knocked out bon jovi in doing so i have a a burning never-ending hatred of anything related to bon jovi and that album license to ill sold over 10 million copies to date uh, and I mean, it's still when, selling. They, they, they keep repressing it on vinyl. I mean, it, it's never going to go away. Uh, when MCA passed um, it, it, the next week, it was number 17 on the Billboard charts. That, and that's 30 some years after it came out. That's amazing. It, it's iconic. That is one of those records that is forever. And not just because of its popularity, but because of its importance. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough one because it's easy to kind of dismiss it as just this big party record from the eighties. But again, when you look back on it and the moment in time that it happened and what came from it, it really is a super important record. Now there are songs on there that as they grew artistically, emotionally, et cetera, they disavowed, they, they walked away from it's interesting. We, I started the, the episode by asking you why, why does this album endure? You know, we're still playing these songs. I spent most of the 1990s on the radio playing girls. We played girls in what's called the the gold category, which meant it got played once every 12 hours on the radio station. Looking at it through the lens of a 2021 human being, it is a misogynistic, cringy thing to hear. But as recently as the late 1990s, it was played on the radio 14 times a week. Yeah, I think there's a tongue-in-cheek aspect to that that gives it a bit of a hall pass i mean but to your point that is also a song that the bc boys have publicly come out and apologized for and said like we were 18 (laughs) what (laughs) what were we supposed to do you know and um again i think that's the thing about the bc boys is they've they've atoned for any Mm -hmm. any sort of that which i mean i can only speak for myself i don't know how other people take it but to me that kind of dulls the the knife point of that song to me where it's like i agree just being kids it's just kids being kids it's not it's not an anthem or like a a war cry or rally cry for like this is how we do things um unlike (laughs) other bands who you know that's you know you turn your hat around and that's how it that's how it goes right um just what an incredible record girls fight for your right to party and you know Brass Monkey, which I think was my first time I ever understood that there was a reference to booze. <laughs> and I think up until I had my first beer, I thought you could get Brass Monkey places. Like I thought you could get it at the at the open pantry down, <laughs> down the street. Which is a reasonable assumption. 
I mean, I was really young when this came out. So what did I know? Right. But I, I think when I was really into it, I would go to the store and like try to see if I could find it, you know, and like, not like I do anything with it, but like, man, when I turn 21, I'm going to get some brass monkey. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I was thinking about this before we started this episode. I was thinking about when I first heard this album, this was one of the first five CDs I ever bought. Sure. In the 1980s. It, I remember getting my first CD player and I remember going to the record store with maybe it was birthday money. It was holiday money. It was just money I had. Uh, and this was one of the first five I took home. And that was a big deal. I'll, and that was in one of those cardboard long boxes. Oh, too. those things were crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll always remember this album for a couple of things. One, I, I started listening to it real young. Um, which was a problem for my mom. So I thought it was, I always to this day will kind of make fun of her for, you know, taking away my Beastie Boys album because it was bad. And then fast forward, you know, 18 years later and my youngest brother's listening to Tupac right. uh, and it's fine. And it's like, mom, the Beastie Boys didn't even swear. <laughs> like, you know, like how are you taking that away from me? And he gets to listen to, you know, Biggie, like this is ridiculous. Um, but it was also one of those records that um, I was blessed. And I think every music nerd probably has this origin story, but I was blessed to have like a friend who was older and more mature and listen to good music. So I got to listen to good music before I had any right to. <laughs> so when I got to high school and all of my friends discovered BC boys, it was like, you guys do realize that this record is like 10 years old. Yeah. Where you it been? Was, it was because Sabotage came out right when I was in high school and everyone was like, holy crap, the Beastie Boys are back. And like, dude, you really like licensed? Oh, yeah. Fight for eight to party. And, and I was kind of, you know, I was the music snob before I even knew I was a music snob. And I was like, guys, yeah, duh. Right. This is the Beastie Boys. You guys have heard Paul's Boutique, right? What's that one? I'm like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sabotage, by the way, this is a total radio nerd thing. One of my all-time favorite intros to punch out of a break with as a disc jockey. Sure. It's just one of the best. I don't that was that's one of those ones where it's um there's reasons, listeners, why we talk over the starts of songs. Uh, I hate it too, but there are reasons why we do it. That is one of those songs that I do do not feel never. comfortable. I never. do not like doing it. I'm like, ah uh, uh, let, let that right. let that intro be the period of your sentence. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, James, in 2021, if you put on uh, License to Ill, are you still in? That's a great question. I would say I'm half in. There are still some songs I, I think are fantastic. I think Hold It Now, Hit It is great. I think that is a fantastic song. I think Rhyming and Stealing is great. I like She's Crafty and I like Brass Monkey. Uh, some of this, I can't listen to girls, and that's not even for the misogynistic reasons laid out earlier i just think it's a, a, an excruciatingly long two two minutes and 13 seconds uh, -huh. uh fight for your right i don't need to hear ever again uh, so it's hit or miss for me i sure. i we're here to discuss its significance yes it's significant but personally I, I i'm only in for about half the album at in the present uh for me i could still go front to back some songs less than others the songs that have been a part of our lives especially professionally since the day we started yeah, I'm a little tired of those, but at the same time, you know, to your point, like 
hold it now, hit it. I'll anytime that comes on, I'm like, oh, dude, I, yes. I think it's the best song in the album, like light years ahead of the rest. Um, I can still do Paul Revere as far as like the mass appeal tunes. I think that song mm-hmm. is just forever for me. Well, it's a little bit of it's a history lesson. You learn something listening to Paul Revere. Not a lot of people talk about it, but the Beastie Boys are educational. You're right. That's right. Actually, you learn more about crime than you do U.S. history with Paul Revere. Beastie Boys, the third ever rap group to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this is where it all started. Yeah, as they should be, because that record not only brought rap to the mainstream and by mainstream. Yes, I do mean white America, but it also that's it. You're right. That's it. You said it. It's true, though. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's right, but I think it's important to note. It's it's an important aspect of this. You know, it monetized hip hop. And mm. if hip hop was going to evolve and succeed and continue. You got to have a money, man. And the Beastie Boys did that. You know, they they took it to the next level and all of a sudden you had record labels looking for the next Beastie Boys. And thankfully there weren't any more. So they actually had to find good rappers. <laughs> and that was an awesome evolution for all of us. That was a good thing to have happened. You know, that's another great point. I mean, really Beastie Boys were one of a kind. They're an absolute one of a kind to the point where anyone that when anyone tries to, um, draw a band back to the bc boys i kind of take offense because you're just like it's because they're white you know like you can't draw you can't like say you know uh, eminem is a derivative of the bc boys like no not even close yeah (laughs) the one thing we haven't touched on it which i I think supports what we're saying here lyrically the the pop culture references the 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 insane words they were able to string together in rhyme super clever songwriters not bad for three jewish punk rockers from new york the history of alternative podcast is recorded at the 101 wkqx studios in chicago subscribe on apple google or wherever you get your podcasts don't do drugs stay in school 